knowing that you could potentially face detention, torture, violence, death, it shows you how desperate the Iranian people are to get rid of this regime. And that's why I say that there's no turning back for them. Welcome to Politicology. I'm Ron Steslow. Protests erupted in Iran when a 22-year-old woman, Masa Amini, died after being arrested by Iran's guidance patrol, or morality police, for wearing an improper hijab. Since September, thousands of people have been taking to the streets in Iran to protest Amini's death, the dress codes, and more fundamentally, the Iranian regime. I wanted to take a closer look at what's happening there and to get a better sense of just how significant it is. So I asked my good friend Hagar Shamali to give us a primer. Hagar is a former spokesperson for the U.S. mission to the U.N. She has also served as the spokesperson for the Treasury's Office of Terrorism and Financial Intelligence and was a senior policy sanctions advisor at the Department of Treasury and a Middle East director at the National Security Council in the Obama White House. She's also an adjunct professor at Columbia University's School of International and Public Affairs and the host and creator of Oh My World on YouTube a show that breaks down geopolitics and world news stories in a fun and easy way. Hagar, welcome to Politicology. Thank you so much, Ron, for having me. I'm so happy to be here. I'm so excited to do this with you. We should start at the beginning and I think set the stage for people since this is not a topic that we've covered much on Politicology. We've sort of been waiting to see how things would play out. Um, So can you talk about what started this round of protests in Iran? The protests started in mid-September when, as you mentioned, a 22-year-old woman named Masa Amini was uh, killed in the custody of the morality police in Iran for allegedly improperly wearing her hijab. So to walk that back a little bit, the morality police in Iran is this police that enforces an extreme version of Islamic law, but particularly as it pertains to everyone's behavior and their dress and dress code. And the hijab, which is the headscarf that that covers women's hair, is mandatory in Iran and has been since right after their revolution in 1979. And there has been resistance to this hijab for decades, and it's always troubled the regime. But it's remained nonetheless. And so in this instance, Masa Amini was allegedly improperly wearing her hijab. She was taken by the morality police. She died in their custody. And it unleashed these mass protests across the country. And they are different and unprecedented and much more forceful than any of the previous Iranian protests you've seen because they've been sustained, they've continued over the last, now it's been three months, and they've crossed many different socioeconomic backgrounds, which hasn't always been the case with the protests in Iran. How have the protests grown from the initial protests about the the dress codes? They seem to have gotten bigger and about more than just the hijab. That's right. So now the protests, very quickly, they turned from being about mandatory hijab and turning toward, uh, they, they have turned toward calling for the end of this regime. And these protests, which, by the way, they have been remarkably led by women and young women in particular. And I think that's such an important point of these protests. Um, They've now, because now people are fighting for their freedom and their dignity, automatically that means they're calling for the end of the regime and they're calling for the the toppling of the Ayatollah Khamenei and for these clerics that have ruled Iran since 1979 and have brutally repressed them. So very quickly, they turned to, to protests that have been 
been calling for the end of the regime and have continued to spread, not just by the way, not just in across the country in different cities. So on any given day, these protests are taking across uh, across the country in about 12 cities and about a dozen cities or so um, at any given point and on multiple days of the week. And the thing that um, that has coupled with these protests is that they've also been coupled with a strike. So now there's a general strike, and that strike is growing. More and more businesses are participating in that strike. More and more employees of, of really important industries and companies like oil refineries and such are participating in that strike. So these have been the two facets of this of these protests. And however the government has responded, which has been with indiscriminate violence and a brutal crackdown, it has only further galvanized protesters to hit the streets. When you say strike, we're not talking about a single business or industry. We're talking about a nationwide sort of shuttering of all business activity. Is that is that accurate? Yes. That's right. So, for example, you have a very central market in Iran's capital, Tehran, this kind of the central souk. And at, as, at least as of a week ago, a third of the stores were just shut down. And, and many of the reporters who have spoken to some of the other shop owners who are there say that, anonymously, of course, say that they fear for their life, which is the only reason they're open, but that they stand with the protesters nonetheless. And this has been, you know, it's hard to get information. At the moment, out of Iran, there are some reporters there. There are some correspondents, uh, but it's not something where you know Facebook has been shut down, Instagram has been shut down, Twitter, of course. So it's hard to get videos from the ground. There are ways, but it's very it's very small. But the thing that's been so remarkable is that we keep hearing over and over again that even for those who are not hitting the streets, even for those who are not going on strike, there is really a sense of a majority of Iranian citizens who are against the regime and who stand with the protesters. And it continues to grow. Can you put this in context for us uh, and compare them to the other protests we've seen in Iran? Have Has Iran ever seen anything like this scale of revolt? Well, they haven't seen anything of this scale. These have certainly been the most widespread and the most um, profound protests since the 1979 revolution. However, Iranian citizens are used to protesting. They often hit the streets in protest when individuals have been executed or detained or unlawfully detained and tortured and so on. But they're, they're quashed, those protests, immediately because the regime always responds with brutal force. They go, they detain individuals, they, they torture them, and they, and they kill them on the streets. But if I look to the, most, the, the largest protests that took place since the ones that you have today, it was in 2009, a movement called the Green Revolution, Green Movement, that was protesting against the regime. And these protests were large and widespread, but they were quashed immediately. And part of the reason they, the regime was successful in quashing them was not just because of, because of the steps they took out of their playbook to detain and arrest and, 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 uh, and pursue indiscriminate violence in the streets, but also because the people didn't have a strong backing from the international community. And that is a very strong aspect of all protests around the world. When protesters feel that governments around the world, that people around the world are covering their news, are sharing their story, are standing in solidarity with them, then it galvanizes them to continue and to keep going. And President Obama has said publicly that one of his biggest regrets was not supporting the protesters in Iran in 2009 uh, during that time, at the during the Green Movement. 
It's so interesting to hear you talk about how important public support is outside of Iran for the protesters in Iran, because that's one of the most important takeaways from my visit to Ukraine in May, hearing from Ukrainians who are fighting for their lives just how important it is for them to hear from uh, people in democracies and other places how much they support the the, the movement there. So uh, there's so many parallels we'll get into later on in our discussion, but I just that stood, stood out to me. Um, I also think it's important before we move on to lay out the power structure in Iran. Can you explain the role of the supreme leader in Iran? Yes. The buck stops with the supreme leader. Um, Ayatollah Khamenei is his name. Um, the previous Ayatollah from 1979 was, there was one before him, uh, the supreme leader uh, Khomeini. So uh, this is the second one. And, and his main job is to really decide on all policy for Iran uh and 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 it 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 goes in both ways it's both policy of the country internally externally foreign policy it's domestic policy but most importantly he is considered for uh Iran for many Iranian citizens and for many Shia um uh, and and as as I'm sure a lot of uh, your listeners know for for those who are Muslim, you have uh, two of the biggest factions are Sunni and Shia. So for the Shia, uh, the Ayatollah is viewed as 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 somewhat of a divine leader, someone who has basically um, the almost as though he's he ordained from their God to to deliver a certain policy, to decide on certain things, um, to interpret law. He's the Pope. Yeah, exactly. He's their pope. That's a very good way to say it. It's a much more some thank you. Yes, he is their pope. And so he holds this position and so you have the ayatollah and you have us and a, you have a, also a world a circle of clerics around him. And they decide on again how they interpret Islamic law and how they enforce it. But you also have the government and the government is elected. Now, I'm I'm not trying to pretend that it's a fair election or that it you know that they're not rigged but anyway but they do have an election to elect a president um and uh and 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 then the president obviously appoints all of the ministers of the cabinet and so on and so but they work very closely together so you rarely if ever see any daylight between the government that's elected and the clerics and the ayatollah like i said the buck stops with the ayatollah he is the pope of their of this uh, of this world A couple of weeks ago, there were some reports that 15,000 people had been sentenced to death for protesting in Iran. I saw this on my social media feed all over the place, shared by lots of people who aren't prone to sharing misinformation. I saw it from mainstream news outlets, uh, and it turned out that was not accurate. Last week, there was reporting that Iran might abolish the morality police, and the reality of that also it's thorny. It's not exactly accurate. Can you talk about what makes it so difficult to get accurate information from a country like Iran and just generally what you have thought of most news coverage coming out uh, about covering, trying to cover Iran in the protests? I'm so glad you asked this. You know, it's a fascinating. It's fascinating to watch and it's dangerous to see news coming out that is distorted because sometimes often like for example with the morality police news like you mentioned um and so just to walk that back the attorney general the Iranian attorney general came out and and alluded 
to the morality police being suspended or abolished. Um, And there were some words there that were lost in translation. And so some of this is a language issue. And some of this is a lack of understanding of what exactly did he mean by that. And he didn't clarify what he meant by that. But the press jumped on it. And the fact is that uh, a lot of reporters afterwards said, well, there must be some truth to it because the government didn't come out quickly to deny it. Except they did. They came out a couple of days later to deny it. And, and it was different officials who denied it who said, listen, he was talking about something else. He's not the minister in charge, or he's not the the official in charge of the morality police. Um, it's not entirely what he meant. What he meant was that the morality police wouldn't be involved in shutting down the protests. And, um, and so that's something to me that I view as just a lack of understanding of how things in Iran function. And the reason when I saw this news, I was dubious from the start. And the reason for that is that the, the regime, in order for this Iranian regime to, to succeed and to exist, it has to have some kind of police or military wing to enforce these kind of strict behavior and dress code laws. Why? Because the regime, the regime, the regime survives based on its ability to control its people. The mandatory hijab is is perhaps, yes, okay, in part because of an extreme interpretation of Islamic law. But why it's mandatory, it's a it's a measure to control women. You can't go into an office and get a passport or a driver's license or do anything, frankly. You can't go register your child for school. You can't, you can't do anything if you are not wearing the mandatory hijab. So it is a it is a means of controlling people. It's a means of knowing what they're doing, of gathering data and and keeping a hand on them. And so for this regime to succeed, it has to have the morality police. If if by chance they say, oh, we're actually going to abolish it, they're only going to replace it with something different. And they have numerous wings of their military. And I should have mentioned that when you said about, when you asked about the hierarchy of the government, the, their numerous arms for police, for um, their paramilitary wings and security guards, they have many different arms. That is a very critical component of the regime and its and its ability to survive. And so that's not going anywhere. And so you saw this when this happened, the morality police news, when it came out, you you had a rush of of reporters and and headlines saying Iran says it's about to abolish the morality police. And and it's dangerous, by the way, because when you have individuals around the world, and particularly governments, believing that, and you did, Secretary of State Blinken was asked, well, what do you think about the fact that that this guy said this? And he said that if, quote, if this were true, it would be positive. It would be a positive thing. That's risky. And, and the reason that's risky is because it sends a message to the Iranian people that the Iranian regime could take a small step like that, if it were even true, which it's not going to be, but they could take a small step like that. And if international governments see that the Iranian regime may even be willing to give some kind of small reforms or measures to appease protesters, it's going to hold the international community back from ceasing all negotiations with the Iranian regime. It's going to give them a measure of hope. So it's risky. So what I saw 
in terms of what? Meaning they'll get rewarded for it diplomatically. Yes, yeah. And by the way, yeah. this is one of the things, and not to go off on a, on a separate tangent, but it's all- It's quite counterintuitive what you just explained there, mm-hmm. because I think on its face, most people would see the uh, Blinken's comments as, oh, obviously we all agree with that. If this is true, it would be great. But to understand the diplomatic implications of that makes it, sort of turns it upside down. Yes. Well, that's right. Because when you have, and, and I have to, let me give some context to this. I yeah, handled- please. Uh, Syria during the Arab Spring at the White House. It was during the first two years of the Syria crisis. So I was there at the White House watching this wave of revolutions go from Northern Africa across the Middle East. And we really didn't know what was what was happening and how to respond. And the the thing that um that that you hope for at the beginning is that, okay, well, if this government is willing to work with its protesters and respond to them and to their demands, then obviously that is a better outcome in general. Revolutions are not easy. They're messy. They, um, especially in countries where they've been repressing their people and not allowing for democratic processes or institutions, of course, it's going to be very difficult for a regime to fall and to have a stable, a stable transition afterward. So it's always preferable if, if, if a regime is saying, oh, well, wait, you know what? I am going to reform and I'm going to work with you guys. I'm going to include the opposition or I'm going to make these small steps. But um, at the beginning, that might work. But once the protesters have, have, have made their voice clear and the protests have grown and they're, getting, they're, they're at the point where they're saying, no, we don't want this regime at all because it's not about the mandatory hijab. It's not about the morality police. It's about our freedom and dignity and our human rights. And we're never going to have that with this Ayatollah and this regime. So we need this regime to fall. And the Iranian regime, which, by the way, I've always found has been very sophisticated in its maneuvers and its global propaganda, um, they... I don't think, by the way, that they they did the morality police statement as a means of distracting the international community, but they have made statements saying that they are reviewing the mandatory hijab mm. and reviewing the dress code. And if you really mm. understand Iran, and I think this is why it's so difficult to get information out of there, I don't think reporters are all Iran experts, nor would I expect them to be, then that's going to look like, oh, isn't that so nice? They're... It looks like they're gonna they're gonna appease the protesters. They're gonna try and work with them. No, that is a distraction. And if it were to even pass, which I don't expect it would, because I don't think the Ayatollah would like it, it's it wouldn't matter anyway because the people are beyond that. That's not that's it's just it wouldn't work. They they have gone this far. They're not gonna turn back at this point. Just a slight detour, briefly. Can you comment on? what we know about how representative of the country at large the protesters are how how significant is the volume um and you know when we say that the the people are over it what does that mean exactly how many protesters are there relative to iranians who are staying quiet or support the regime yeah so this is where your question about how hard it is to get information is um matters a lot for this question because the fact is that i don't have hard numbers to share with you. We should note, you know, obviously the U.S. doesn't have formal diplomatic relations with Iran. We don't have an embassy there. And certainly that plays into our ability to get, you know, for U.S. news sources to gather information. That's 100% right. So we don't, our embassy has been shuttered since the revolution. And any negotiations that we do with Iran, um, either they're held 
abroad in another city, or they've been done through other embassies for us. For example, the Swiss embassy is our representative, essentially, uh, in Iran. And so on one hand, you don't have an embassy. And when you don't have an embassy, it means you don't have your spies on the ground. You don't have just regular consular officers who are working on visas who are in, or to working with people. You don't have diplomats who are out and about, right? So that's the first. Um, and then the second, of course, is that the Iranian regime is a pro at controlling information and has shut down uh, as much as it can of the internet, of social media, uh, and and so on. And inside Iran, they you just have Iranian state TV that propagates its propaganda. And then in order to get things outside, you have some individuals here and there who are able to uh, work around the system, find a way to send a video out. Uh, perhaps things at great risk to themselves. Oh, huge certainly. risk, huge risk to themselves. Yeah. And and the Iranian regime will go after them if they, they will try to hunt them down as well and figure out if there's a, a video that went viral. Who is it that took that video? How is it that they got it out there? So it's difficult to get this information. Uh, is the answer to the question? But the reason, the reason we know that these protests represent the majority and represent Iranians of all backgrounds is in part because of the different cities that they're taking place in. These are cities that are very different in terms of ethnic background. For example, they're taking place in the Kurdish cities uh, and as well as the capital, Tehran. They're taking place in cities that tend to be normally more uh, favorable toward the regime and more conservative, uh, religiously, I mean ranging from there to the more liberal-ish cities. So um, so you've got that. You have that, we know that the people participating in them range from uh, a shopkeeper, a janitor, um, uh, to school teachers, to, uh, to, to the elite. Um, we know that schools and universities across the country have been heavily participating. By the way, the bravery of these students is is outstanding. You have clerics and government officials who have gone to these schools and uh, universities to talk to the students. Um, in particular, you have all-girls universities and all-girls schools where you've had government officials have been invited in to talk to the girls and where they have removed their hijabs in front of the government official and started chanting that the regime has to end. Yeah, it's remarkable. And to do that, knowing that you could potentially face detention, torture, violence, death, it shows you how desperate the Iranian people are to get rid of this regime. And that's why I say that there's no turning back for them. This isn't about the regime saying, okay, 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 we will lessen the morality police or we'll suspend them and we'll get rid of this mandatory hijab. That's so far beyond what these individuals want. And the recent executions are proof of that. Can we get into that, into the executions? Yeah, let's get into the executions. So CNN reported on Monday that Iran had carried out two executions of protesters in the last week. CNN said they cannot independently verify the number of people facing execution. How should we expect the regime to respond to these protests and what what do we know? So here's, right, here's what we know so far. There have been, like you said, two executions. One was private in a prison. The second was public. It was uh, conducted uh, symbolically, I believe, in a city that is a stronghold for the Ayatollah. 
uh, I believe it's the city of his birth. And he, the, the individuals, uh, both individuals were 23 year old young men, uh, protesting and, and, and I don't even want to say what they were charged with because it's probably a lie. Um, and so they were charged with different crimes, but they were protesting and protesters and that's, they were, that's when they were detained. And uh, so the second one was publicly hanged, um, uh, from a construction crane. And the, it is, it is believed that the individuals who were at the execution uh, cheering it on were all government types, were all members of the uh, Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps, that's their military wing, their paramilitary wing, um, or of the besiege, which is another arm of their security uh, guards. And so um, and so this happened, the, the parents were informed the morning of, after it had happened, and the regime is pursuing this in a very clear effort to quash the protests, to instill fear. And maybe it has worked for some people, but but on the whole, it has only added fuel to the fire. And it has only further galvanized Iranians and caused even further widespread demonstrations after these executions. You still have, apparently, again, the numbers, it's it's really hard to say, but allegedly you have 11 more who have been sentenced to death, 11 more protesters sentenced to death, and you have a whole other number of them who are awaiting trial. And these are all sham trials, by the way. So right, they were detained. Right. Days later, had a sham trial behind closed doors with a government-appointed lawyer who barely defended them, if at all. And then days later, were executed. And so um, this is how the regime is, is portraying this. And or going through this. And, and, and I want to add that these, it's not, it's not surprising, unfortunately, for the regime to respond this way. They, this is the regime that trained the Syrian government in how to respond to its protesters. And so when the protests broke out back in September, and I saw them continuing as someone who followed Syria very closely and worked on it and saw what the Iranian regime did to to teach them the regime playbook on how to quash protesters i only expected the Iranian regime to to at at every point to whip out their next cards and they just they 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 they're not done they have a lot of cards they they haven't played yet but the executions in particular have really caused this widespread anger and fury at the regime and at the moment has done has has done the opposite of quashing the protests do you think uh that among those cards might be some more um vicious sort of mass attempts to quiet protesters i mean like that we saw bashad do in syria do you think that that's what we're talking about it wouldn't surprise me um, we have to remember that in Syria, it took it took longer than it appears, um, or maybe in the grand scheme it didn't. But but it took um, you know the Syrian government the way they did it. And the Iranians are no different. They always test the red lines of the international community, yeah. and it's very unclear what the red line is. The United States has not said yeah, what the red line is. Right. In fact, their current talking. Well, we did we 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 did once. Yeah, and that was right. That worked out really well for us. And and I was at the White House, by the way, when President Obama made the red line, the infamous red line about uh, that we would act if the Syrian government used chemical weapons against its people. We could get into that another time if you want about what their thinking was in that in in saying that red line and why it wasn't enforced um, the way it was. But um, 
I'm happy to geek out on all these uh, on all these issues. But for you know, this is typical of of regimes, right? The, the Russian regime is no different. It's these regimes they move incrementally. They take different steps, one after the next, each one is stronger, to see how far they can go before the international community reacts harshly. And harshly to them means some kind of either they're completely cutting them off from any kind of negotiations. They're saying that they that the regime needs to step aside, that they need to allow a transition uh, to, to move ahead. Um, or of course, military. When it comes to these di- dictatorships, usually it's military language that talks. Now, nobody is going. Nobody. Nobody's going to go and threaten some kind of military action inside of Iran. I mean, I, on the part of the international community. But but there, but I mention this because this is how dictatorships operate. They have a lot less to lose than a democracy does when it when you're talking about protests and responding to the will of their people or to their people's demands. When, when one of the things I say about Syria all the time, and I, and said from the beginning, was that Bashar al-Assad would bulldoze his entire country and everyone in it if it meant he could remain in power. And the Iranian regime is no different. And, and a lo- all dictatorships are like that. They're not. That's how they operate. It's I gotta crush you. I'm gonna crush any any effort of at dissent, any spark of it, because if that's only going to undermine me. And the reason they don't like to give in to their people, even into the smallest demands, is because they view it as a sign of weakness. That if they give an inch, their people are going to take a mile. And then soon enough, they're going to be elected out somehow or overthrown or whatever. So to walk it back again to the incremental steps, the regime is taking incremental steps to see how far they can go. And so far what you've had is detentions and torture You've had obviously these executions. You have violence in the streets. They've shot at people. They have uh, uh, beaten people in the streets and so on. They have not yet gone to the next level of kind of mass shootings, right? Where they're taking machine guns and just shooting at people at at all the protesters. They have not yet gone to um, using their air force, for example, or using missiles or bombs or things of that nature. That doesn't mean they can't or that they wouldn't. Uh, it just means they're trying to see how far they can go before uh, how how far they can go before the international community shuts them down somehow. And the reason I think we're a little bit far off from the international community cutting them off in any way, saying that they're never going to deal with this regime, that it should step aside, is because the talking point from from the Biden administration right now, at least, is that. Um, their priority is supporting the protesters and not the nuclear deal right now. And listen, I was spokesperson twice in the U.S. government, and I can tell you that when they come out with these talking points, and and two officials have said the same exact talking point from the from the U.S. government, both Ned Price, the State Department spokesperson, and Rob Malley at the White House, who handles the Iran negotiations, it means it that means that is a talking point that has been cleared and carefully crafted. The words not now, that the nuclear negotiations are not the priority right now, means that one day they could come back to the table for this. One day they might be, they might want to revive it. And those words I saw for me as a foreign policy expert when I saw that, I heard it the way I would think the Iranian protesters would hear it, which is, so you haven't you haven't cut off the Iranian regime yet. You're still, you would still be willing to do a deal with them if 
if the opportunity arose. And that's risky. It can be very dangerous. I feel like we should just take a time out to hear about the red line and the sort of what you think the Biden administration is getting right and what it might be missing about this current moment. Mm. This this right now language is a good, I think it's a good example of, of you know, we, we've talked on the show in the past uh, recently, especially about Saudi Arabia, Venezuela, and this administration's sort of um, seeming seemingly seeming inconsistency when it comes to being in favor of supporting uh, liberal societies and, and democratic ideals around the world um, when that conflicts with U.S. interests and uh, and this 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 constant tension of interests versus values, U.S. interests versus U.S. values, is has been stark relief over the last uh, couple of years. So I wonder if you can comment on how you see U.S. policy playing out vis-a-vis Iran right now with that as the backdrop and, 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 and what, you know, what comparisons, what contrast would you make to Obama vis-a-vis Syria when you were there? Wow. This is like a dissertation question, but you hit the nail on the head with this question. All right, let's split it into two things. First, I'm so glad you talked about, you, you highlighted um, and I've and I've and I've listened to to your episodes, by the way, of uh, when you were talking about Saudi Arabia and Venezuela and so on. Um, when the Biden administration came into Jamal Khashoggi being one of the yeah. most recent examples, by the yes. way, and feel free to comment on yes. that. But the declaration that um, that MBS is immune essentially from prosecution made my eyes pop. Oh out. yeah, I'm just shocked to see yes. that. Yes, so. and and I was even more shocked that the State Department White House came out with an excuse to say that it was, this was precedent, you know, he's head of state now. And so this is the precedent. And I'm sitting there thinking to myself, do you take us all for fools? Yeah, sure. Okay. It is precedent. That doesn't mean that you had to take this move. Um, and, and it's because of other U.S. interests at heart. It's because of oil. We all know that because we already saw this play out under the Biden administration. So let me walk this back a little bit. For decades, under both Democrat and Republican administrations, as generally U.S. foreign policy has pursued this kind of unapologetic uh, view of we're, we, the United States, we're going to go after our U.S. national security interests, our U.S. foreign policy objectives unapologetically, and it doesn't really matter what the human rights are in that situation. We're going to fight for our democratic values as much as possible, but when it comes to certain national security interests or domestic interests, right, like this, in this case, the economy and so on, oil prices and whatever, then we're, the you know, it's complicated. And you hear that from a lot of national security experts in Washington all the time. I, it was a common refrain when I was in D.C. from officials it's complicated. National security is complicated. Yes, it is. Com- of course, it's complicated. You don't work in this if, yeah, if you don't like the complicated. complicated. Um, but so for decades, it's been like this, that we always, we often turned a blind eye to human rights abuses in countries because of name your input, your reason, oil prices, um, uh, because of allies around the world that we had to protect, uh, whatever it might be, because of certain nuclear deals, I mean, whatever input your reason. There are many, many reasons why. And when the Biden administration was camp- when they were sorry, when the Biden team was campaigning, and when they first came to office, they said that they were going to upend this entire system of decades of foreign policy based on placing other priorities before 
human rights and other democratic values, and that they were going to put that flip that on its head. And you have a lot of proof of that because Biden on the campaign trail said that Saudi Arabia was a pariah and that he he would treat um, he would treat them as such. And in fact, at the beginning when he first got to office, Jen Psaki, the spokeswoman for the White House, said that that President Biden would never meet with MBS, the crown prince, now the prime minister, because it wasn't his counterpart. So why should he? And uh, and so on. So you have all these, you had, you had these examples at the beginning, uh, during the campaign, and when they came to office, that they were actually going to do it. And by the way, as someone who believes very strongly in, in making human rights a central tenet of our foreign policy, and that by not doing that, we are only enabling dictators, I was super excited. And I believed it. I believed it would happen. And basically, if I were to give a grade on this, it would be a C. I did too. I believed it also because that kind of rhetoric, when you see it from the debate stage of an inexperienced candidate, you kind of expect them to uh, maybe get into office and learn that they were talking a bigger game that they could, than they could back up. But we were talking about the vice president of the United States who should know exactly the promises, the implications of the promises that he's making. And so that's why I believe. Yes, a hundred percent. And, and, and listen, you do see that, that president Biden and, and, and some members of his team have learned certain lessons from uh, their time under the Obama administration in particular, and that they're applying it. But it, but my, my view is that it's just generally inconsistent. So for example, when it comes to Turkey, They've been, uh, they have held their line on, publicly at least, on calling for democracy and uh, that they're going to be monitoring that and, and calling out their wrongs and so on. But when you see what happened with Venezuela and Saudi Arabia and a, a you know, with Saudi Arabia, and they're different, but so with Saudi Arabia, Saudi Arabia to me, it's, it's very... It's reflective of that same policy you had decades ago, where it is this willingness to ignore human rights abuses, crime, murder, which ends up enabling it in order to achieve a separate goal because you can't have your cake and eat it too. That's a certain belief. I do believe that when it comes to the United States, and perhaps this is an older view, but I do believe that with a lot of countries, we have a lot more to offer sometimes. Not for all countries. For a lot, it has to be very equal with Europe, with our allies, it has to be very equal. But when you're talking about a country like Saudi Arabia, generally, I am of the belief, and this is arguable, this is an opinion, I'm of the belief that we have a lot more to offer them and they have a lot more to take from us than vice versa. And we have to, but we have to know how to play those cards right. And if we don't, then we walk out of there fist pumping the the fist, the fist bump that was heard around the world uh, with MBS, and uh, and 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 it not even resulting in the intended goal, which was an increase in oil production, um, and that's because it's it shows to dictators that they can get away with whatever they want. So that's why I mean why it enables it. So to answer your question about the bigger view, I think the Biden administration has attempted this and have faced those complications that you mentioned that typically people who haven't been in government figure out when once they're inside government. Um, and they've seen that. And then for some other cases, they are applying the lessons. And so for Iran, and this gets to the second part of your question, for Iran, at the beginning, when you had the protest breakout in September, the Biden administration came out very swiftly. And I believe that that was a lesson from the Obama administration. 
Biden and, and, and other officials came out quickly to support the protesters. They levied sanctions on those on the morality police right away and have continued sanctions that that claim that the state policy is to hold accountable those who are responsible for the violence and, and for quashing these protests. And they withdrew certain sanctions to allow for information to come out of the country more easily. So certain tech um, and internet-related, comms-related types of sanctions. So they withdrew those. So they showed that they were able to be nimble and that they learned the lessons from, from Obama. But the reason I harp now, three months later, that it feels as though they're not really, they're not thinking so hard anymore about those lessons is because of that, when I harped on that talking point that, they, that they've been coming out with, that right now, the nuclear negotiations are not the priority. The priority is to support the protesters. And they leave that window, that gray area, saying that, well, maybe one day they could deal with the Iranian uh, regime. I'll give you a historical example as to why that's so risky. Back in 2009, when you had that green movement and you had this revolution uh, against, against the regime, at strong, those were the strongest at the time since 1979, um, one of the things that the Ayatollah waved in everybody's faces to quash the protests was a written letter from President Obama. Now, the letter had nothing to do with the protests. The letter written by Obama was about the nu- was about starting nuclear negotiations and that we could overcome our differences through diplomacy. And the Ayatollah went out to pu- in the public during the the these two thousand nine uh, uh, protests, even though that letter had been sent months earlier, right? Like two totally separate things. But he took that letter and said, "The President of the United States." wrote me these, quote, beautiful words, and we're going to come with a solution, and we're going to come with a deal, and those sanctions are going to be lifted, and everything here is going to be better, but he trusts me to do that. He wrote me that letter, right? We have to be, in the United States, very careful with when, when, we, when, when the president of the free world writes a letter like that, it ends up, in a way, endorsing and to me, it's not surprising that a dictator like that would would totally take the letter out of context and use it that way. So even when 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 the Obama administration said, "Well, whoa, whoa, whoa," we, you know that letter had nothing to do with the protests. It doesn't matter. Um, that's just PR one hundred and one. The headline is out there. It's the first story. That's what the Iranian protester are protesters at the time are hearing, and it is one of the things that experts believe helped lead to the end of those protests. It was this sentiment that. Oh, well, forget it. I mean, if the if the international governments and community aren't going to stand behind us, and on top of it, they 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 have clearly stood behind that guy, then there's no point. There's no point in continuing these protests. And this is the lesson that I don't believe is is being explored right now. And as and I can tell you, and I, you know, this is not without I'm not trying to insult or criticize in any way. I do Yeah, no, this is fascinating. It is, it is. And I I do believe, you know, and I saw this when I was at at the White House. There when it comes to national security and the world we live in, it's so fast. And there is a demand for a response that's so fast from the press, from the public, from Congress, that the White House and the National Security Council, I found at least during my time there, and still to this day reacts is is too much on the defense is reacting too quickly is trying to react to the day to day and thinking about the day they're not thinking sometimes about 
two years from now, five years from now, 10 years from now. And they're not, a lot of them, I believe, I I hope I'm not insulting anyone at the moment, but I don't believe that they're looking at historical examples because they didn't certainly when I was there. When I used to cite historical examples to indicate how President Assad would react to protesters in Syria, they just kind of were brushed aside. Intel analysts love that stuff, by the way. They adore that stuff. They live in that world. They they eat that stuff up. But those are not the policymakers. And the policymakers are sitting there with different immediate concerns, right? They've got Senator Menendez yelling at them. They've got the an election. They've got, you know, these are the things that they they have the press is is pummeling their their spokesperson at the at the podium, whatever it might be. And that sometimes gets in the way, I find, of crafting better policy. How much do you think that's a function of four-year terms versus trying to do foreign policy at the speed of social media? Both. I think both play a big role because I think there's a reason why this was a hallmark in the Obama administration that continued. It continued under Trump. It continued now under Biden. One of the things that you know, I was at the NSC, at the National Security Council, at the beginning of of Obama's term. So you had a lot of uh, holdover from the Bush administration. And the NSC, by the way, is is staffed at the director level, what I was, director for Syria and Lebanon. It's staffed by civil servants who are not political. And that's that's how it should be. It should be people who are experts in their in their uh, portfolio who have no political agenda. The level above and up are all political. Senior director and up, those are all political appointees. And I had continued to hear from the Bush holdovers, from the directors, that the way the Obama NSC was conducting business was much more reactive, much more too quick, and much more micromanaging. That's a common, you hear that a lot. That was a common criticism, point of criticism of the Obama NSC. And still to this day, it remained under Trump, by the way, and Biden. And I think a lot of that has to do with the nature of the press and the media now, social media, this demand that you you risk a narrative getting away from you much more easily than before. So you have to react much more quickly if you're going to own the narrative and you're going to shape that message. So then you're making decisions really fast. And uh, it was a churn there. Those meetings were 24-7 in order to do that, in order to be out so fast. But then you could really lose, you know, you really lose in that process being able to bring in all the experts, bring in outside experts, to really have conversations with your intel analysts, to really view every side. And they try to. I know they do. I really do. I, you know, their their intentions are all good, of course. But it's um, it's I it's hard to say right now where their mind is at, except to, to when you see that talking point, it's that they've made this decision of they're not right now thinking of calling on the Iranian regime to step down the way we were pushed to during the Arab Spring. They're not thinking of making the nuclear deal a non-negotiable thing. Um, they're saying that right now their 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 priority is to support the protesters and not the nuclear deal. But that means it's still on the docket somewhere. So can you just zoom out for a minute and let, let's interrogate this apparent conflict between interests and values vis-a-vis Iran, because is there not a strategic reason that we should be taking a harder line against Iran? And is there only a values reason? 
I'm so glad you asked that, Ron, because this is a unique situation where both converge. Iran is at the root of all of our national security problems in the Middle East. They are supporting and financing Hezbollah in Lebanon and destabilizing that whole country. They're financing Hamas. They are backing, financing, sending arms to the Houthis in Yemen. They are financing and sending arms to the militants in Iraq. They destabilize often the Persian Gulf. They have a nuclear program. Why? It's to create a nuclear weapon to use against Israel, to threaten Israel, our defense ally, an ally that we have committed to coming to their defense if they enter war. So Iran for decades has been at the root of our national security problems in the Middle East, the vast majority of them. And so if you take steps to that could undermine their strength and survival, then it's win-win. You are both standing up for the protesters and our democratic values and freedom and standing in solidarity with them. And you could have an opportunity at letting this regime that is at the root of all your problems fray and collapse. And I just don't see, I know know it's not a silver bullet, but I don't see why we wouldn't take that opportunity knowing that it's also in our national security interests. So it isn't in this case necessarily one versus the other interest versus values, but actually um, you could make a case convincingly that it's in, it falls in both of those categories. hundred percent. You know, it's, it's not hard to imagine the, the, the political pressure, uh, right. That, that must be on the minds of the, especially senior leadership of the White House, especially with the war in Ukraine raging and our support for the Ukrainians becoming so, becoming now more controversial. Um, and, and there's been so much, uh, made of the threat of nuclear war with Russia that now biting off another major conflict with a country like Iran just seems so terribly fraught. You can imagine the political conversations that are going mm-hmm. on there with, that that might have that might have resulted in a phrase like "right now," right, entering into the talking point, um, because they don't feel like it, they have the bandwidth for it politically right now. I could I could imagine that, but I guess you know, since we've we've gone down this rabbit hole, I'd love to ask you how how you think we can prioritize the long term when the short term impact either way, right, is so volatile. Sure. So, you know, and I, I don't want to make it seem as though if if the U.S. government comes out and says, this is not a regime we could ever deal with based on how they're treating their protesters, and therefore this nuclear deal is never going to come back on the table unless it's a different leadership. I don't want to pretend and and tell you that by saying that, that it's going to be a quick fix, that Overnight, it's it's um, that they're going to fall. That uh, that uh, there will be a, a stable transition to democracy a day later. That's not how it works, and it's certainly not how it worked during the Arab Spring. However, Iran is a little different in that they have a history of success through their protests. That's how the first revolution happened. It was because of mass protests, and and it was a revolution, and uh, and I would argue that this is a revolution, by the way, because and 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 that's important. It's an important difference to make. 
And that's what I mean when I say that the Iranian people are not going to turn back. It's too late now. They, they're going to continue, even if, even if the regime succeeds at, at quelling protests for a while. This effort that they're going to pursue, general Iranian people, to resist their morality police, to resist laws, to dissent, to probably work with outside partners in some way, shape, or form, whether they are democracy groups or activists, um, people who ship in satellite phones, people who train uh, on how to build a democracy, right, how to create those spaces for democracy. All that work, it's only going to explode after this. So that's why there's no turning back at this point. And the that's why I I I say I, I believe that there's so much power when a government like the United States and 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 preferably along with other governments and I see the European governments by the way are further out on than than the United States on this issue and I don't know if that's geography or um, because they're certainly dealing with the Ukraine crisis that's in their backyard yeah. but the right. Iranian the news news of Iranian protests protests taking place as well, that's, you feel it in Europe much more heavily than here. They're covering it more. You have more people who are out hitting the streets in front of Iranian embassies or consulate offices in Europe. You have uh, celebrities, French celebrities, for example, all came out, 50 of them, 50 women who went and cut their hair. These are not Iranian French women. These are just French celebrities, right? So you, you, you feel a little bit more there in Europe. And already you've had a couple European governments say, Maybe we should, maybe, maybe we would, maybe we could never do a nuclear deal with this regime given what's happening. So it's there as a rule. And I saw this when, when I handled Syria, you have these governments that think this, but they're waiting to see the U.S. They're waiting to see which way the wind blows coming from Washington. And that's, that, that's amazing. That is something that, that's awesome for us. We should never lose that. But that is also a responsibility that we have to that we have to know we carry and we have and this deserve. Moral, yes. And it's a moral responsibility that people want in us. They want us to hold that responsibility and to come out and lead. So if the US government comes out and says, you know what, forget it with this, with this regime, other international governments will follow suit. And when when the people of Iran see, huh, not only are you, the Iranian regime, brutalizing us and repressing us, but you're never going to even deliver on sanctions relief, then you guys are really useless to us. And more people will hit the streets. More might defect. Defection is a tricky thing, by the way. I don't want to stress that too much. I've seen it it's never been really a successful policy to 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 eye defection but when you couple all these things together it can further bolster the protesters to continue doing what they're doing and it can fray at the regime already you have in iran for example things that just you would just never have seen um these strikes from oil the oil refinery you do have some clerics have come out and said that what the iranian regime is doing with the executions is wrong those are clerics from Qom, from a very conservative city in Iran, right? So this is not a joke. So when you see these threads, things are threading apart, it means that there's something there there to take advantage of. And I just, I hope that that the U.S. administration, and I, I have no doubt that they're having some kind of conversations about it, 
because I'm sure they feel some pressure to do something, even if there's there's Ukraine. You know, I mean, they can walk and chew gum at the same time. They have Iran experts um, and teams who are tasked with with dealing with this. But um, I I just time is not on the side of the protesters, and that is a rule always in dictatorships. So you got to move if you really want to support them. You got to move quickly. Okay, let's talk about the uh, the UN panel on women. Currently, Iran has a seat on the 45-member commission on the status of women at the United Nations. The U.S. is leading an effort to remove Iran from the panel this week uh, as we record. Do you have any sense of how that might play out and how significant it would be? Well, I, th- I, I believe it will succeed. Um, I believe it'll succeed. I think what's sad is that there has been there have been efforts from human rights groups to kick Iran off long before this, and they've been and they've failed. And that I mean, starting as um, a year ago, uh, if not if not sooner. But so it's now it's it certainly uh, it has galvanized many more governments against Iran in this instance. And I believe that that they'll succeed, these governments. The Americans are the ones who who wrote the resolution to kick them off. And uh and I think that this time they'll they'll be able to. But I think it says a lot and and I have a lot of thoughts about the United Nations. Well, <laughs> a yeah. lot. I mean it one one has to wonder you know, it's not like we just learned about Iran's yeah. oppressive treatment of women, yeah. right? We didn't just learn about this. And last year, a UN expert wrote that women and girls are treated as second-class citizens in a report to the Human Rights Council. So, like, one has to wonder what dynamics allowed a country like Iran in the first place to get a spot on the commission on the status yeah, of women. Exactly. And they seek, by the way, dictatorships like this seek these positions on the UN, the status of the commission, of, the commission on the status of women, the UN Human Rights Council, and so on. Why? Because it's a form of whitewashing in a way. Now, it doesn't really work, to be honest with you. If anything, it just, it just makes... No, it doesn't. Exactly. It makes it makes the entity look like a farce. And the Human Rights Council is even worse if you can. And that has been a farce from the beginning. And you have some of the worst human rights abusers on the Human Rights Council. China's on the Human Rights Council, right? I mean, you we could go on. There are many, Pakistan, Uzbekistan, there are many, some of the, Cuba, you have some of the worst human rights abusers on the Human Rights Council. And the UN status on the Commission, the commission on the Status of Women is no different. And- What is the it's, point? What, what, what it's is a, the point? You know, the thing that kills me with this, and there is, there is no point. It is, it's, I'm a believer, and this is not going to surprise you, that I believe that we need the UN, but I believe it should be burnt to the ground and rebuilt. The whole system, <laughs> it, it, it has created these pathways for human rights abusers and dictators to abuse the system, to make statements, to share propaganda, to get themselves just sounds like reputation laundering, yeah. constant reputation yeah. but laundering. The, but the worst yeah. part is that it doesn't even work. So, you know, it's it's yeah. not like sports washing, which really does work. And we could talk about that another time. But <laughs> but these efforts are just dumb. And it's just, they, they have these council meetings and they, they're supposed to come with reports and decisions and they're supposed to expose abusers and they're supposed to take action against them. But how can they if the abuser is a voting member? Right. That's another reason why these dictatorships seek these positions to prevent the spotlight from 
shining on them for to prevent them from from being on the receiving end of any kind of punitive action or, or sanction of any kind. And um, and it doesn't totally work, but they do it anyway. And so this it just further high and and, the, and this status is not the this commission is not the only one that suffers from this at the UN. And and there is no I wish I had a solution for you that um that that could work you, they have faced this before kicking for example they've kicked other members off of the human rights council when they've been just so egregious right they have to really be be crazy egregious to get kicked off um you mean like a genocide yeah, yeah. or something like, yeah so it's 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 um and 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 you'll see like saudi arabia tried to get onto the human rights council after after the kingdom murdered jamal khashoggi they were trying to get onto the Human Rights Council, and it took a big effort among a lot of countries and human rights groups to prevent to prevent that from happening. And so you may ask yourself, but but how could they do that? Well, they have a lot of chits with other countries. And so they're going to go to these other countries, certainly in their own region, where maybe, you know, they just don't view the murder of Jamal Khashoggi as, uh, as egregious as we do, or maybe they get some kind of oil kickback or whatever the deal might be. Maybe it's a counterterrorism deal. You have no idea. And they, Saudi Arabia will go to that country and say, you know, you better vote for us. Otherwise X, Y, Z is off the table or we're, we're not going to help you on whatever deal it is. Right. It's a lot of back channel, ugly negotiating. And this, the, the UN system, when it was created, um, you know, I got to say coming out of world war two, you would have assumed that they would have been exposed to enough ugliness that they would have found a way to 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 assume that countries would act um, often not in a in a in an altruistic manner, um, but they didn't. They set the system up so that you know it's kind of like one vote, one person, except for the Security Council. Um, and and yeah, I think the UN. We could talk about this another time. I think the UN is facing an existential crisis, <laughs> like, but they have been for decades, and it's all the worse now. But I really see no way. Reform is not going to be easy. They need to burn the place down and rebuild it. Not unlike lots of other institutions that are facing existential mm-hmm. crises, right? And it's just one one among mm-hmm. one among many. Uh, it seems. Let's close out by looking a little bit broader uh, at protests that are happening other places, and 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 the relationship between the protests in Iran and what we see happening. You know, for example, in Russia and in China, we've seen small protests in Russia. Um, we've seen these protests in Iran, and then also some of the largest protests in mainland China in decades. I think thirty years, some estimates have it. What do you think is contributing to the uptick in protests we've seen? What do they have in common? How are they related? And what do we need to understand about the dynamics between these countries? Yeah. It's a little bit kind of what you had during the Arab Spring too, when you have protesters come out and show that they can come out in the face of violence and and repressive regimes, it inspires others across the world. And you certainly saw that with the Arab Spring. It was this wave of them, right? And right now, there's there is no coincidence when you have numerous protests breaking out in repressive regimes like Russia, Iran, and China. They're sparked for different reasons, of course. And that was the case with the Arab Spring, too. It was different things that motivated the protesters to come out, different demands and and things that they were upset about. In China, as we know, it was related to the pandemic lockdowns. Um, but and and it's and it's possible 
that those uh, protesters saw what was happening in Iran and and felt, okay, you know what? Well, we can clearly do the same thing. If they're facing a brutal regime, then we can do the same thing. Now, I don't know that for a fact because information in China is super controlled. Um, but what what is what we what we can see is that the way the Chinese regime reacted is really unlike any way the Chinese Communist Party has responded to dissent in its recent history and or really since it since it came to since it came to power usually if there's dissent of any kind any i mean somebody says something on social media and they have their own social media called weibo so they don't have twitter and and, and all that um because they don't want people getting news from the outside um that will be scrubbed within seconds right the chinese regime is just on top of it they don't want any kind of dissent and so when when you had these protests uh, uh, start, and very specifically about the lockdown, the Chinese regime came out very quickly. Days later, it was about a week, uh, saying that they would first of all they actually took steps right away to change lockdown measures. They for ex- things that, for example, they uh, said that that individuals did no longer needed a negative PCR test to ride the subway. Um, that if individuals tested positive for COVID, but it wasn't severe, that they could just isolate at home. Whereas before they were dragged out and taken to a government, an awful government quarantine facility. And by the way, that wasn't just for COVID positive patients. That was for random other individuals that they felt were exposed. So they, they took a number of steps right away. Uh, a week later, and they then they came out and said, and this is because they need to, for their own propaganda, the regime needs to come out and say, um, listen, COVID has changed uh, since it started two and a half years ago. And so we ourselves are reviewing and updating the policies so that uh, to, to make sure that you all are happy and to make sure that that you all are safe and that our economy can keep going and so on. And that's their way of of making it seem like these that that they're that they're that they're evolving and that they can react right, but to to for me as a, as someone as a foreign policy expert watching China react this way the the Chinese Communist Party I was stunned that I've never seen that happen before and I've certainly never seen it so quick and I believe my analysis would be that they're seeing what's happening in Iran in particular they they know from past history how it's gone down across the Middle East during the Arab Spring and they don't want mass protests. They don't want to deal with that. They don't want to respond with mass violence. They'd rather keep a lid on it. They'd rather just survive, stay in power, and have their people happy enough where they're not going to rise up again, um, but not give so much that, you know, they take, uh, like I said, they don't want to do that thing where the protesters take an inch and they give they, they take a mile. Um, and I think that that was why they reacted the way they did. It's certainly because of what they see happening around the world. You think it also has to do with the the you know the video footage of what's happening there getting out and and becoming so prolific on so because we were actually seeing I think for the first time uh, you know vi- video footage of the Chinese government cracking down in a really brutal way on these protesters and I wonder if that sort of embarrasses the uh, the regime and we know China is very you know sensitive to. Um, being yes. embarrassed. They don't like right? public criticism. That's right. They 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 have a view very much of uh what happens here is our business. It's our sovereignty. It's not your business. Don't meddle. You don't meddle and we won't meddle, which is a joke. They meddle everywhere, but that's beside the that's a separate story. <laughs> but yeah, this is a whole different podcast. <laughs> um but 
yes, I, I agree with you. I think that they were afraid of that kind of public criticism that could come from that. This is not, they don't want a Tiananmen Square. They don't want to roll tanks out and 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 shoot at people. They would rather control them in a different way, in a much more hidden way, in a much more subtle way. And, um, and I believe that's why they moved so quickly. And they did it at a point, you know, at that, at that, at the stage that they did it, the majority of the protests were against the pandemic lockdown measures. You only had a couple protests, a few protests that did come out against the Chinese Communist Party and President Xi himself, which is so brave. And 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 I'm I'm not sure what happened to those individuals, but that was not that had not yet taken that had not yet um, sparked. That was. You know, right? And 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 you could have said the same about um, the Iranian protests. I say that about the Syria protests all the time. That when the protests started, they were very specifically about human rights and dignity. And had the regime right at the beginning, within that first month, said, "All right, listen, we're gonna we're gonna take some steps. We're gonna allow the opposition. There was a Syrian opposition. We're gonna allow the opposition to have a few seats in the government, and uh, we'll take some measures." to walk back these saying they have their own morality and that's not morality police. It's a different kind of police, but same idea. Um, and we'll take some, they could have quashed it. They could have for sure. And, and I think that's a lesson to dictators, which is wait, if I react quickly and I do the minimum, then I might not have to face this long-term, you know, pain that will cost, cost me sanctions that will cost me business. And China has a lot more to lose. Right when that when you're if you're comparing to the Iranian regime, they have businesses all over the world, they have land they're trying to seize all over the world. We again separate podcast. They have mm-hmm. um, a yeah. rep- China and Africa as a whole. It's like a five part mm-hmm. series. But yeah, we, we'll do that <laughs> yes. another time. But it's fascinating yeah. how it all connects. Hagar, this is so good to do this with you. It's so good to see you. You're the best, Ron. You are a light. (laughs) And to me, your energy is the most amazing. And every time I talk to you, it feels like everything is going to be okay. And your questions are so insightful because it allowed us not just to talk about Iran, but put it in this grand bigger picture of policy and geopolitics. And uh, and that's the right way to, to look at foreign policy and geopolitical events. Well, before I let you go, where can everybody find you? On the internet, all over. Yeah, the you're internet. so kind. Where are I you am all days? over the internet. So, um, I have my show. Oh, my world is on YouTube. Please subscribe, and uh, it's ten minutes and ten minutes once a week where I cover the top world news stories in a fun and easy way, and in a satirical way. So, and in and a that's funny the way idea too. because <laughs> the whole goal of the show is to educate and and raise awareness on these issues because they matter and they matter to to Americans on a daily basis in a way that may we may not be aware and and what we do also affects geopolitical events abroad in a way that we may not be aware so i try to educate through entertainment which means that i'm often dressed up as world leaders in in wigs <laughs> and bad accents um a lot of men i impersonate a lot of old men you know nothing nothing will make you feel like 
the majority of world leaders are old men until you seek to impersonate them. And you have to get... So you start dressing up as them? <laughs> yes. Do you know how many old men wigs I have? <laughs> because like... <laughs> well, I was going to ask you, do you use the same wig for Donald Trump and Boris no. Johnson? Oh, they each have their separate like... wigs. They each have their separate... <laughs> Boris Johnson's my favorite. Oh. <laughs> I'm so bummed. I can't I can't impersonate Boris Johnson anymore. I take any opportunity to bring him back. They, they have two different wigs um, where I have now a wig I got for, for King Charles. Um, because come on, he's just so easy. He's so much fun to impersonate too. Um, he's just so dry and, and his, his British accent is so different than, than other accents. And I don't get every accent great, but I think that's the fun of it too. Yeah. And, um, so I've used his wig for Bibi Netanyahu and I, technically I could use it for Biden too, but I, tr- I try to keep the wigs because to me they're characters. So Putin has his own wig yeah. and, and, and they all have their own wig. And, um, but I did use the Putin one twice, uh, just this week when I was impersonating the German prince who, who tried to overthrow the German government. Oh. And, um, and that one was, that one was too much fun <laughs> to make fun of. That was a real plot that they had planned. Um, um, yeah. yeah. So please check it out. It's on YouTube. So and then uh, you will have fun. Yeah. It's 10 minutes once yeah. a week. And then otherwise I share uh, snippets from the show, of course, across Instagram, uh, TikTok, and Twitter. And I try to do my own uh, satirical bits where I'm educating on certain pieces of news to trendy songs and so on, again, in, in costume on my own Instagram and TikTok at Hagar Shamali. Thank you to everyone at home and on the go for listening. If you haven't yet, we'd appreciate it if you could open up the Apple Podcasts app and give us a five-star rating and review over there. This helps us rise in the rankings so that new people can discover politicology organically. If you have questions about anything we've talked about, you can reach us, as always, at podcast at politicology.com. And even when we can't respond, we do read everything you send us, whether it's an episode idea a guest recommendation, or just a simple note about how the show has impacted you. And we love hearing from you. I'm Ron Steslow. I'll see you in the next episode.